chainsaw history. I don't even know how she can cope with that. Like, how do you get shingles in your eye? And uh, I was like, and you win. Yeah. That's one of the most horrific things I can think of outside of genitalia. Shingles on the the junk is even worse than the eye. (laughs) Anything on the junk seems to be the the ultimate. Well, speaking of shingles on the junk, (laughs) (laughs) that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. Thank God. Surprisingly, more diseases than you might expect. I'm Jamie Chambers. This is my sister, Bambi. Hello. This started because I fell down a rabbit hole of genealogy after um, I got an Ancestry.com DNA kit as a Christmas gift. This is not an endorsement. I'm not being paid to talk about them. It just is a thing that's true. But um, when I started, got the DNA results, then I started doing some family tree business, ended up um, subscribing to some paid services just so I can do the research. And then I started looking at history because I was going to be a college history professor once upon a time. Like that was... How did that work out? I changed my major twice, minored in history, and then never did anything with it ever again. So, college. I'm really glad I'm facing crippling student (laughs) debt. Yeah, how's that student loan? (laughs) Not paid off yet. So, who knows what this is actually going to be called, but I can tell you, um, that's the main thing to know, is I am not a historian. Um, I only minored in history, but I am kind of a fan and nerd about history. And so like one of the things that I think I'm good at is is taking history, making it relatable to, to more people who aren't as into it as I am, telling it in terms that you can kind of get on board with and start to understand. And however, I'm probably like if we put this online, I'm probably going to classify it as comedy because I intend to swear a lot and reference drugs and, yeah, and no unspeakable one, behavior. No one can ever make me stop swearing. It's it's really terrible. Old people and small children just hate me. Yeah, no, your little kids should not listen to this fucking podcast. No, <laughs> little kids. I'm to the point where if you don't like swearing around your child please don't bring your child around me i'm just no longer give any fucks we will offend you (laughs) so maybe what we're going to be doing today is i'm going to uh be giving you a hopefully not incredibly boring nerdy history lecture but it's going to be related to something in our family tree so we're going to start there with a family connection and luckily this is going back many generations so we can't humiliate anyone currently alive Which is, you know, it's good and also sort of. And this is actually, like, this story is one of the things that gave me the idea of doing this show. At least the thing we're going to intro with. And then it's going to lead us into a larger historical topic that I don't think enough Americans talk enough about. Or know enough about, really. So, you ready to do this thing? I was about to say, that could literally be anything. So, so what would be... (laughs) That's so vague, it could be anything. What would be your fictional time travel machine that we need to use to jump back to 18th century colonial America? So, well, this is going to be full historical, but I was just thinking, like, do we want to take, like, H.G. Wells' time machine or the TARDIS? Or oh, the, no, or no, no. I, I, I need Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine. Okay, excellent. <laughs> that's that's where I am. I If we're getting in a time machine, I'm getting in with the dog. <laughs> excellent. So we're going... <laughs> that's the driver. So we're going I'm to, we're gonna like jack that. Mr. Peabody's machine. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to take it back a first to the year 1756 before we jump back a few extra years before that. Okay. So it was Saturday... February 10th, 1756. 
A 12-year-old boy named David Boyd was sent by his mother to gather dry firewood while the father of the family was visiting their nearest neighbor, who was over a mile away. This was central Pennsylvania in the mid-1700s when these were like settler families that did not have a lot of neighbors. They were just trying to carve out... They didn't have a lot of anything. Yeah. Period. (laughs) So these settlers were strict Presbyterians and it was kind of their habit to get all the important work done by the end of the day because Sunday is meant to be purely rest and worship. Grabbing his hatchet, young David took his little brother, John Jr., who was six years old, along to gather the firewood. That's when a band of Native Americans from the Delaware tribe, according to the sources, surprised the boys and took them captive without much struggle. Okay. John Boyd Sr., the father, was missed walking through the woods, but the rest of the family was gathered together. The mother, Nancy, was not in great health, and it could be that she just hadn't recovered yet from childbirth. Well, yeah, because she probably had had several of those. She had like, there's like seven or eight of these Boyd kids. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, women, you know, you either gave birth to children or you died in childbirth. Oh, she was constantly <laughs> pregnant. Constantly. Because, I mean, that was, you're either pregnant or you were dead. Yeah. And, and so far, she had good luck um, when it came to delivering all these kids. Unfortunately, her luck runs out well, today. Cause... This is not a great day for Nancy. Um, she All we know is that she wasn't in great health, so it could be that she was still recovering from childbirth because she's carrying her infant, James Thomas. But she can't keep up because these are fast-moving native raiders. Yeah. And, and a bunch of like set frontier settler children who are all in great shape. So, well, yeah, I mean, after your entire fucking reproductive system gets turned into mincemeat, yeah, for the, like seventh time, <laughs> for like the seventh time, yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. colonial times when there was no such thing as modern medicine, and yeah. she was probably just like leaky and bleedy yeah, and terrible. Really poor, bad. poor Nancy. <laughs> Yeah, and, and unfortunately, things are not going to get any better for Nancy at this <laughs> oh, point. Because we, I, oh, I hope Nancy dies swiftly. <laughs> so this, That's horrible. This is pretty fucking grim, but oh. here we go. Um, she's got her infant son, James Thomas, and they realize, the natives realize, this woman can't keep up. They're taking prisoners, but she can't keep up with them, and they're on foot. So she sits, the, the natives sat Nancy down with her baby on a, on a fallen tree and let her say goodbye to her children one at a time. David, uh, he quoted her later in life saying, uh, Oh God, be merciful to my children going among savages. She was only 37 years old. Once the captive children were out of sight, the warriors left behind killed both the mother and the child and scalped them both. Yeah, sounds about right. David and his sister Sally were forced to later take turns carrying the scalps of their murdered mother and baby brother for an entire day. And now... Only one example of the humiliation and cruelty they'd be forced to endure. Uh, Which started... Yeah, cradling your mother's head. Yes, yeah, the top of your a, mom's head and your little baby brother. Oh, mm. that's that's fucking brutal. We don't okay. know exactly how old the kid was, but it was less than a year. Is, is That's that's kind of what we know. So he's either a, uh, a small toddler or a true infant. We don't know. Either way, that's pretty fucking rough. Um, and then they had to watch as their their home, the, their family farmhouse was looted and burned before they all had to run off taking turns carrying and mom's that scalp. also sounds about right. Welcome to the mid-1700s. Yeah, uh, it was a fucking terrible place. John Boyd Sr., the distraught father of this family, was forced to watch his home burn from a distance before setting off to alarm local settlers and organize a pursuit. He took one look at this situation and was like, I could rush down there and, and die. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, dying doesn't seem like a very intelligent option. Although, you know, when he finds his wife and baby's, you know, head eventually, hopefully, 
then that's also fucking terrible. Okay. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's no, there's not great either way. So, uh, but he did what made the most sense. He went to organize people, but because like their nearest neighbor was the one he was just at a mile away. By the way, those two people were killed in this raid as well. They were childless. That family completely wiped off the map and their, uh, their home also burned. So because the pioneers were scarce in central Pennsylvania, took some time to gather the needed men, guns, and supplies, which was more than enough time for the swift Delaware raiding party and the white pioneer children to make a lot of distance. When the pursuit party led by John Boyd Sr., um, they found shreds of Nancy's dress clinging to some bushes off a trail, and then they followed tracks to a nearby ravine. Oh, that's horrible. And looking down in the ravine, they see these scalped and mutilated bodies of uh, Nancy and baby James. The headless corpses. Well, not decapitated, just the, you know, just scalped. So by the time... The world was terrible. Yeah, by the time David and his surviving siblings reached the native villages in what's now Ohio, John Sr. had given up hope of ever seeing his children alive again. Now, we'll get back to David in a different conversation, but I bring his story up first because the earliest sources are all about how cruel and the, and the savagery of the native people, but they always just talk about it just purely in that, that context and never in the larger story about what else is going on. So that's what I'm going to do today. Okay. These brutal raids were part of a larger conflict that American history books call the French and Indian War. So, like, as a, you know, pulling from high school history, do you remember anything at all about the French and Indian War? No, not a thing. I mean, I I could guess that it would be between both French people and Native Americans. And that's about as much (laughs) as anybody has, because the truth is, our, you know, public education in the United States tends to gloss over this because the Revolutionary War is only a couple decades away. And that's the, that's what excites everybody, because, you know, we're, in terms of indoctrinating Well, that, and we're not, we're not French. (laughs) Indeed. Without this war and without our colonial ancestors' uh, victory in that war, there would almost certainly be no United States of America as we know it. It's a really fascinating struggle in its own right while setting all the initial pieces on the the chessboard for what will eventually be America's war for independence. But it's also important to remember the French and Indian War is just one theater in a larger conflict between European colonial powers that spanned five continents. Winston Churchill uh, called it the true First World War, beating the one we call World War One by 150 years. Because we didn't care about those people. I mean, uh, in fact, that's exactly right. The indigenous, nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> the indigenous populations in all of these places get caught in the middle and screwed and completely over. Completely fucked. Because uh, these small, relatively small European nations were projecting power all over the globe. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, the Native American people were very brutal and very savage and very, very, very pissed off at this point. And who could blame them? This is when colonialism started really getting going, you know. Uh, So so the global war is is called the Seven Years War, which lasted either seven years or nine years or maybe even 22, (laughs) depending on which historian you ask and which, like, which skirmish well if it's if it's the 22 year war i feel like the seven year war is a really misnomer there's a lot of that in history (laughs) but the fact is the same time as like the french and indian war big discrepancy i mean seven and nine sure seven and 22 22, that's pretty fucked y'all you know it's all just about deciding at which point which point is like the starting bell you know which things officially kicked it off because especially for the global war there was a lot of stuff related to like royal like succession and like little territorial disputes. So it's there's an argument to be made of where it really started. However, a lot of people will say it gets started in the colonies and that's what we're going to get into. I also started with David Boyd's story for one more reason. He is our fifth great grandfather. 
So that guy is family yeah. entirely the, kidnapped the by the Boyds. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was our our maternal grandmother's family. So if you yeah. go to our grandmother's father's father and going up to what's the our fifth, fifth great grandfather, that was David Boyd, who at twelve years old was kidnapped by Delaware natives. And we will get back to him later. I'm gonna we're gonna do a whole separate okay mini episode just in his life because I assumed all of our ancestors would have boring as shit lives. And then you found out about the horrific kidnapping, yeah, scalping. That and... turns into kind of a real life dances with wolves kind of story. It's really, it's it's interesting and complicated because it's like on one hand, when you know the whole larger story, you can understand why the natives did their raids. You can also understand why it sucks when your mom gets scalped and <laughs> you get ca- <laughs> you're captured and tortured. Forced to carry around but, her But then later on, like I'll get scalp. it, we'll talk about it later, but David goes full native and, and actually comes to love the chief of that tribe. Who was there when his family was captured and his home burned, but came to see that man as his true father? It's a, it's an interesting story, but we'll get back to him. So Stockholm syndrome. But we'll get back to David Boyd at another time because we're gonna at this point we're gonna get into the larger history. That's the why all that shit just happened to him and his family. The French and Indian War. French and Indian War. So I'm not gonna get into the whole seven years World War thing. Um, I'd rather focus on the slice of it that concerns our country and our ancestors because we don't have like seven hours to talk about this. Uh, the international business is like an entire history course all by itself. But ironically, it's kind of worth noting that um, there was a point where British soldiers were fighting the French and and Indians from India on the subcontinent while we had our own French and Indian war going on over here. So there was too many Indians. We didn't. And we're, yeah. We're bad we should at naming really, things. We're really bad at naming things. <laughs> misnomers. Yeah. So we had literally that level of confusion going on at that point. So let's set the stage for our conflict. England and France had had beef for basically ever at this point. <laughs> In the 18th century, always looking for an excuse to, to you know, get back for the previous scuffle that they'd had. I, well, I mean, that's pretty much half the wars throughout history oh, yeah. is yeah. just, you know, well, I mean. Revenge mo- or well, get territory you lost back. Most wars are just pissing contests between men over oh, oh, yeah, basically land white and, rich yeah. men are you know trying to fight over Fighting more stuff. back and forth. So England, France constantly going at it. Uh, you know, and meanwhile, this was the, like I said, this is when coloni- the colonialism is really getting going. So because white men didn't want to pay just, taxes, going all over the fucking place. rich white men didn't want to pay their fair share of taxes. Well, that that gets into our uh, American <laughs> Revolution, of course. <laughs> like you're gonna see so much of like seeds of what makes Americans Americans all the way back before there was such a thing. The British colonies were all in the like the eastern coastline of the United States. And then the French were holding the territory to the north, north and west of the Appalachian Mountains. So up into Canada and then going, spilling down into the mainland from there. Okay. But over more on the western side. So some cold right. motherfucking land. And similarly to now, yeah, there's a population difference. So like for, you know, the British, the British population vastly outnumbered the French Canadians. Um but at the same time, France had vast more territory. Kind of like how Canada is yeah. huge but has one-tenth of the population of the United States. Because it's fucking cold yeah. there. But that was the situation yeah. they were in. Now, you always got to remember the purpose of a colony is to generate profit for the mother country through the mercantile well, economic every, model. Well, everything <laughs> is about profit. Oh, always. Always. Now, you know, you know, 
and that's another thing like you know what they tell you back in school and the the sort of oversimplified version of the mercantile system is that you know raw goods are are gathered from the uh the colony shipped back over to the mother country where they're turned into finished manufactured products and then sold some of them sold back to the original places they came from with all of the markups that come with overseas shipping twice and everybody getting their cut along the way but now the British colonies for well over a hundred years had enjoyed what's called salutary neglect. Now neglect doesn't sound good, but salutary is literally the same root word as salute. It literally is like a term of respect, basically saying, Hey, the colonies are running themselves and getting themselves established. Adios. So we're not going to enforce all of these taxes. We're not, we're going to, we're not going to enforce the trades exclusivity that you would normally have. So technically they were they, left alone. Yeah. There was technically a lot of smuggling going on that they just didn't bother to enforce. And there were taxes that they just, they were on the books, but they never once tried to collect. Things like that. So for a long time, you know, the American colonists got used to being left the fuck alone. So like the British, the merchant class in England was super influential at the time. So they were making a lot of money. They're all the rich, you know, rich business owners. They're making money. So everything's going well. So so there's not a lot of reason for England to rock the boat by enforcing all these rules. So they were letting a lot go. And the colonists were used to doing things their own way. Meanwhile, the native peoples had endured, you know, the encroachment of and displacement <laughs> by all these European settlers for hundreds of years. So by the time we get to the, the mid-1700s, there were already just tons of treaties, alliances, and trade agreements in place. So Most of which weren't upheld. Yeah, well, they were, they were, you know, after some time, yeah. Yeah, it was very Darth Vader of them, you know, we have altered the deal. <laughs> Pray we do not alter it further, even though we're going to over and over, over again. again and fuck you over, you know, until the end of time. Don't try. So, but here there were, there was some differences. So the French had all this land, but not as many people. So they were, they were more, much more reliant on the natives. So they worked really hard to have agreements that they actually held up their end of the bargain more and they intermarried a lot. So like the French tended to drop their racial prejudices and enter into these highly profitable <laughs> marriage They sell their daughters yeah, into well, marriage. Like, you that's, know, you know, that's pretty par for the course. Of you the know, thing. the chief, you know, marries off his daughter to this French-Canadian business. And meanwhile, so his tribe can suddenly help with their fur. Because the, yep. the French-Canadians were doing, their main source was the fur trade. So it's tons of trapping of animals in which the natives were really good at helping with all that. So everybody's making some cash. And so the French, you know, dudes were like, ha, ha, ha. I don't. I will marry your daughter. I am highly in love with all of the money we are about to make. Because <laughs> you, selling, know, you know, whatever. Bear. It's it's not like wives aren't disposable anyway. Beaver pelts work for good money. So, uh, uh beaver pelts. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you just traded your your daughter for a beaver pelt. That's um. No, that's no for all of yeah. the the. the that's cash a beaver pelt for a cash, beaver pelt. <laughs> the cash guns and no. booze you get. For selling your daughter to get beaver pelts to white people on the other side of the world. But that was just like, the, you know, so the French were had much stronger native alliances than the British. Who would make a treaty and then violate it whenever it was convenient when, yeah. for them? Even though not, it's not to defend the French, it's just there were less of them, so they were kind of forced into this situation. So both sides start far apart on the map, but colonizers be colonizing, and as both sides are expanding their territory... It was like a pressure cooker. You know, eventually it was going to explode. Both France and England were claiming areas such as Nova Scotia and Acadia in the north. And Acadia, as a side note, is, you know, as a result of all the shit that we're about to talk about, the Acadian people were forced out 
and told to march south into what's now Louisiana, and that's where Cajun people come from. But at first, we're just talking about settlers in small numbers. So like our great-great-great-great-grandfather we were talking about earlier and his family, so they would you know move over to the other side of the Appalachian Mountains because it was just amazing farmland you know in Ohio. I mean, always has been, always will be probably. Can, yeah, you can grow some shit there. Yeah. Mostly corn. Lots and lots of corn. And it was kind of a ballsy thing to be an English settler in the Ohio River Valley because it was claimed by France. It was a disputed territory. And it was also home to all these native tribes who were allied and intermarried as fuck with all of the French people. So to the natives, raiding and burning these homesteads was both getting rid of more white people and doing a solid for their French allies. But on the British side, they had their own treaty negotiated by an, uh, a Native American leader named Tanagrison. And I probably completely butchered that guy's name. So I'll just use the kind of cool nickname that the white people gave him, the Half King. The Half King. The Half King. There was, in colonial history, there was a few people they nicknamed the Half King. And it's basically the racist version of respect because he, um, this guy was the chief of the Mingo people who were, it's kind of like a blend of other tribes that were displaced or half wiped out. And he was kind of the, he was a leader among them. So a not white guy can't be a king. So he's a he's half a king. half king. It, so yes, this is racism, even in his nickname, but still, you know, half king still half a cool nicknames. Yeah. So he's going to come back into this story a couple of times, but for now, just know that the half king had come to an agreement on behalf of like a whole tribal council representing a number of different, you know, groups of Native Americans, including the Iroquois Confederacy. I was about to say, I wondered if the Iroquois yeah. League was going to... Oh, yeah. The Iroquois are all a part of this. In fact, at the moment, he's he's been given kind of the blessing to speak on their behalf, even though sometimes they got their own people in there. And once again, I'm kind of having to super simplify some of this stuff because we're doing a short podcast and not like a 400-level American history class. So it's already kind of warm in our pressure cooker when the colonial powers turn up the knob by building military forts to project power directly into the wilderness. There had been previous scuffles, there had been some treaties and more tension building. And then the, go the old governor general of New France died. And his eventual replacement was a guy named the Marquis Duquesne. At this point, French start getting a little bit more picky about enforcing their treaties with their own tribal allies. Like, for example, the Miami people are not supposed to trade with the British. They have an exclusive deal with the French. And they're, and so the French tell the Miami people to knock it off. The Miami people ignore them. Yeah, because fuck you. And so the French decide to call up some of their own Ottawa tribal allies and send in some troops with muskets to straighten the Miami people out. Because, <sighs> once again, as cozy as the French were with the natives, it only goes so far. If you still fuck with the money, you're going to get shot. Well, yeah, because, again, it's it's really the bottom line. Don't fuck with white people's the, money. Do not fuck with with people's money it's yeah. it's our hard line but in this case they, they were simply just trading with everybody and not just the french and then they got shot uh so by the time we get into 1753 it becomes clear that in order pr to protect this really important region that everybody knows is going to be covered with the best farms in colonial america um the french will need to keep armed men in the region at all times so up goes some forts and you can probably imagine what these 18th century wilderness forts look like. They're completely made out of wood from local timber. There'll be a few central buildings surrounded by a palisade, which is like sharpened tree trunks in a fence all the way around. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, the forts were not the coziest of accommodations, but were a hell of a lot better than being camped in the middle of a forest filled with Native <laughs> Americans who are really good at, at killing around you? in that said forest. 
The French expanded south and they were kicking out any British squatters along the way. And then that caused more heated conversations to go back in the colonial capitals about what's going on, you know, more and more French are moving into the area. And, and then the native allies that were the, the natives of the British were saying, uh, what the fuck? And the half king, he absolutely hated the French. The guy told stories to anyone who would listen that the French had killed, had killed, cooked, and eaten his father. Ooh. I mean, and if that's true, legit reason to I hate mean, the French. I mean, yeah. I'm, even if you even just think that's true, it's a yeah. legit reason to hate the French. So Fuck those frog-eating, no... human-eating motherfuckers. <laughs> I have no full Yeah, once you get the to the they ate my dad, you can see some some not nice things. So the half king actually um, marches up. I also to the, think scalp mom is is on that that's list too. Also pretty rough. Yeah. So um, so the half king marches right up to the gates of Fort Le Bouffe. and yes, like Shia LaBeouf translates literally the beef. Oh. So he goes into Fort Leboeuf and and just and just yells at them that he that the French need to leave this area uh, or he, he threatens military action. And you can imagine, you know, the French on the other side, uh, you know, going all Monty Python. <laughs> oh my! Ha ha ha! Your mother smells of elderberries. Go away, or I will taunt you a second time. So uh, so the half king goes off in a huff, having accomplished, you know, fuck all. <laughs> But, okay. but he's, other than being like yeah. horribly mocked, he was rebuffed, rebuffed at Leboeuf. <laughs> so runners were dispatched to the to the important Brit- British colonial leaders to let them know about the French troop presence in the Ohio River Valley. And not only did the British have their own claims to protect, but there were important business contracts writing out. Because once again, there's always money. History books often don't like to talk about all the money and. Oh well, that's the thing. I mean, money is at the root of all of it all evil i mean and, 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 and we're about to get into some evil all of it so the half king sent his people the the chief of the mohawk uh showed up on behalf of their tribal council like representing a whole nother group of native americans who were all allied with the british and demanded that the british live up to their obligations to keep the french out of the area and when the governor of new york didn't immediately just call up troops and um, to, uh, like get this shit started they they took off pissed off and that was the point where they say that the cozy relationship between the british and the iroquois confederacy took a hit like it wasn't completely broken down at this point but i was about to say because that came later yeah so the the french have really strong alliances with their native allies and the british just weakened their ones with the most important because in this in this area the iroquois are the ones you need the most now, the Cherokee, they're kind of in the background of this story. And through the course of the war, they switch sides like four times. <laughs> they just like, whichever is the most expedient. Whichever way the wind blows. Yeah, no, no. They're, like all of them were just trying to do the oh, best yeah. they could in a shitty situation as they were slowly losing land and having to overlook I mean, more atrocities. Since we live on Cherokee land. <laughs> I mean, yeah, We're currently. recording this from occupied Cherokee <laughs> land. So believe it or not, we're, that was all just the prelude to our, our real story. Yep. It's time to introduce our main character for the rest of this this talk today. Uh, there are plenty of important figures we could we could have picked and some different angles we could have looked at, but but as Americans and especially thinking of this from a you know quote unquote family point of view, there's only one choice: the father figure of us all. I speak, of course, of George Motherfucking Washington. Ah, uh, he's a complicated dude. Yeah, he's all kinds of full of good things and bad things. Right. Rolled into one and, and extraordinarily complicated human man. But this is young George Washington. Oh, 
So was he less complicated and more of a dick? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm going to be interested to see like where you are at the beginning of this. And then once we get to the end of the second part, or actually all of it, just how, uh... your, how your opinion will shift. But just think back for a moment and think of yourself just like in grade school. Like, you know, we all think of George Washington in the Revolutionary War and as president, first president of the United States. Some kid that chopped down a cherry tree, which turns out was complete and total utter bullshit and didn't even really have been or have any kind of relevance in life. And yet we still learn that. Yeah, even and I'm pretty sure that even halfway through high school, I was convinced George Washington had a homicidal hatred of cherry (laughs) Cherry trees trees. (laughs) and a like a psychotic inability to lie. Like, no, that motherfucker lied all the time. None of those things were true. It turns out cherry trees were perfectly safe around him. And he he lied his ass off when when necessary. However, while being, uh, you know, a relatively forthright dude, as we're about to see. So this is not the white-haired figure in the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland. In 1752, little Georgie was only 20 years old, the age of your nephew. So that's you got to think about Xander yeah. in your head in terms of like that's how old this guy is when this, this story starts. Twenty year old, this punk ass kid. This kid, even though of course in the 1700s even children are just considered little adults expected to just do what they needed to be done. But um, he was very ambitious, but he had no idea the incredible place he would take in the world and all of history. But let's get a, like a visual picture of young George Washington at this point. He's six feet tall, which is, you know, in mid-1700s is so pretty big guy. So he's little shorter than Xander. Right. But yeah, but if you grade him on a curve, he would be more like 6'3 or 4. Yeah, he because, was like big, because people were Average guys then. were more like 5'3 to 5'4 back then. So he was a pretty big guy. And in fact, his, he was strong as hell. And his hands were so big, he had to have custom-made gloves for the size of his just oven mitt his big meat hands. tennis racket size hands so he's got reddish brown hair that's like tied back in a tight tail or sometimes fitted in a silk bag and though we're a long way from his like denture years even at 20 years old george had like austin powers like teeth <laughs> that dentistry is important children he had like terrible tooth decay and so even at this age it was bad enough that like a friend from this time in his life, wrote a letter about how fucked up his teeth were. And so he, so he, even at this young man, he had this very tight-lipped expression that you see in all of the paintings and statues because he just, his whole life, he was super self-conscious about his teeth. Interestingly enough, though, he did not have, like, the booming, commanding voice you would expect from a George Washington. Though he was physically strong, George kept getting sick. Because this, of course, the era of just all kinds of of disease. pestilence. Because it's like, on one hand, it's like before any real, like, actual medicine. But it's also when world travel was a thing and diseases were truly traveling the globe at at speeds never dreamt before this, this time. Like, it literally took years for the Black Death to move from China all the way to, like, Western Europe. But now shit can just move in a matter of months because of all these ships going all over the world. Thank you, imperialism. So well, George, you know, I can't. I like traveling, so yeah, no, travel's good. Travel's just, just good. so. I mean, is, not so, traveling on a boat for months. So are vaccines getting lied to about you know how awesome this place is? That's so. Just again, despite being physically strong, George kept getting sick. By the time he was twenty, he'd already had malaria, smallpox, and a nasty bout of pleurisy in his lungs which left him with kind of a weak, breathy voice that didn't seem to match his, like, you know, superimposing things. So I guess he talked kind of like original Dumbledore from Harry Potter with kind of a wheezy voice. I'm George Washington. (laughs) That would be amazing. Uh... 
So think about that through the rest of this story. Just this kind of like kick-ass looking guy. I cannot think. It's Dumbledore George Washington just got really fucked up in my head, especially now like, and then make him 20. 20 no. years old, Wheezy, Wheezy George. <laughs> Wheezy George. And unfortunately, like all later in life, it's it's pneumonia that he that he caught that killed him. So his lungs got him in the end. As they do. Yeah. So young George was an interesting guy, uh, kind of a study in contradictions. His temper was absolutely terrifying. So he worked at keeping a tight lid in his emotions. He tr- he developed self control because if he lost his shit, it was bad. And he was a big, strong dude with ma- you know massive hands. Well, I mean, you know, self awareness. Um, he was a bit of a romantic, but, you know, especially when he was, like, writing love letters to his various, you know, young lady friends. Um, but he was always deadly serious. And he was like, for a young man, he was not the life of the party. He was the guy who would be, like, even when everybody else is trying to relax and have a drink, he'd be the guy talking about politics and current affairs, even when you're just trying like, Trying to no, have a good I've, time, dude. I'm staying off social media, asshole. <laughs> I already told you, I'm in my media bubble. Yeah. So George wanted very much to be part of Virginia High Society, but he didn't have the money or the family name back from England to carry him. Kind of a fancy boy. He loved fashionable clothes and, and enjoyed dancing. Like he learned the latest courtly dances. So if you imagine like Jane, young wheezy George Washington doing Jane Austen style, you know, dancing. It was fine. It was just that you don't really, when you think of George Washington, you don't think of him really working hard to be this fancy boy. He ordered his clothes from London a every pop, year. A pop, if you will. Yeah. No, he ordered his clothes from London every year. So he was this fancy boy, but the flip side, because it's always about these contradictions, he was a natural outdoorsman who adapted easily to life in the rough country. I mean, he was a brave and badass guy. But what he wanted, though, was to be part of this, you know, high-end society he wanted to be an important person well i would say then he accomplished his goal so and here's the sort of another ironic thing so once he did set his sights on military service what he wanted more than anything else was a royal commission in the proper british army because in the colonies there was no standing army they just called up militias when they needed them which were you know only got paid for the time they did work and it was a lot less and there was a lot less prestige and so it was sort of like... And you had to abandon yeah. your, your farm and you your bullshit do all this stuff. at a moment's notice. Where, whereas if you actually get a commission in the British Army, that is a full-time gig that comes with a lot of prestige and honor and can lead to the kind of political career that George is already looking for. So what he wants to do is fight for the British more than anything else. But it's but he but through he his whole life for the British. Well, isn't that he ironic? wants to be a redcoat? And, and but he never manages to achieve this. However, to be fair, he also goes on to defeat that very army and become president of a whole new country. So, I think he wins. I would say so. I mean, considering you know he's the father of our country, not just some nameless, faceless British soldier that's long dead. And it will make anybody who's been a fuck up feel better when you hear this story because it's not just all in one straight direction upward for George. He has some setbacks. Um, and but it starts though, and I think this helps you understand too. Um, I'm going to reference Alexander Hamilton and even the musical Hamilton a few times. But if you learn about young George Washington and then you know a bit about young Alexander Hamilton later on, you really get the sense of why George Washington saw a lot of himself in Hamilton. Because they were both men who had something to prove. Like Alexander Hamilton 
was the son of a Scottish nobleman, but he was a bastard. In and theory. He was, yeah, in theory. In That's theory. a whole other story. <laughs> but uh, but in theory, he had that name, but he was desperately poor, and he always was trying to prove himself. He was always trying, and, and Hamilton tried to fit in with fancy society and dressed himself up and all that shit. You know, George, there was a lot in common with these two guys, even though George was not a bastard. Uh, he was, however, the, the, the oldest son in a second marriage. So it's like he had, there was an original batch of Washingtons and then the mom died. And then several years later, his dad, Gus, married another woman. And then George was the oldest of the second batch kids. So that could go either way, depending on how his father would have, how he liked his wives or children. Right. And it's kind of the, the, this thing basically was... Because no one was really protected. They, they were a landowning family. The Washingtons had held land in Virginia going generations back even before for uh, Augustine, which is, you know, Gus was his nickname, uh, Gus Washington's family history. But at the same time, like this older batch of children got all of the best stuff. They got, they inherited the early property and cash and got all this extra stuff. They all got to go to paid primary school and college. George Washington had no formal schooling his entire life. So, and he was, you could always tell that was sort of a, not only jealousy, but kind of like a, a shortcoming. And he always felt the absence of that. Cause like his brothers learned how to speak French and could read Latin and got all this advanced stuff. And Probably he, learned all those fancy dances in college. Yeah. George is having to, you know, go and learn all this stuff himself. But George, so he, he was, you know, kind of equivalently basically homeschooled and he did learn, you know, certainly could read, write and do math and solid stuff. He just didn't have the classical education that you'd get the back then. The formal education that right. you would get. So his mother had to have made up right. and actually, his education. And apparently, you know, he seems like he was a pretty educated dude. So. And not just his, well, not just his mother. His mother was actually a bit crude and half illiterate. Uh, so George was... On... I don't mention her much, but George had a complicated relationship with his mother. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, it's that's a whole other interesting that's story. A whole other. He had some mommy issues to, for sure, and she kept fucking with his life at different points. So he had mommy issues and some daddy issues. Daddy issues. Uh, however, his daddy issues were cut short because his dad died before he was twelve years old. So it's like, on one hand, he was well off by the st- like by the standards of actual of the time. By the standards of the time and actual working class poor people, he was well off. But in terms of the Virginia high society that he aspired to be, he was far short. He was down down. He he felt like he was a loser. But he was very good at math. And, and it came in really handy because by the time he was 17 years old, he got himself a gig as an apprentice for a land surveyor. And then eventually completed that and like went on. By the time he was 19 years old, he had a career going surveying. Okay. So he would run off into the country, you know, t- you know, taking measurements and, you know, making meticulous notes for people, for all these rich people to come and occupy this land. And to the point where he not only was had plenty of his own freelance work, but he got named the county surveyor of one of the counties in Virginia. So he had like... Okay, yeah, because I mean, that was... A, surveying was a huge... When, yeah. Yeah. When colonizing when you have was literally <laughs> no maps. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to do it. And these are people who are wanting to establish farms and build buildings. And you gotta, you have to have a skilled surveyor to, so you can make all your plans and know where you're gonna build your shit. And George was reputedly very good at it. And in fact, he could have just done that and been successful and then have been the end and probably maybe no America. <laughs> well, that would have been a shorter story. Yeah, for sure. The end. Roll credits. Uh, more than anyone else, George looked up to his older brother, Lawrence. Uh, the oldest living Washington, he was a soldier and businessman, landowner and politician. That sound familiar? Ah, oh, okay. But Lawrence came down with tuberculosis 
I think in his early to mid 40s, if I remember correctly. And he was not doing so great. Having TV in the mid 1700s yeah, sucks. I mean, I mean, having TV now sucks. Oh, it sucks, <laughs> period. But in this case, when your doctor says you're probably going to die, but that maybe if you go move to Barbados... Year, the, the tropical climate might help you restore you. I mean, which is, it won't hurt. I would rather move to Barbados. Although I guess in that point too, it's like, well, ex- unless you get malaria. Because having TB and malaria would be terrible. But the good news is they'd already had, everybody in Virginia had, had malaria by that point. Oh, well, there you go then. So George dropped everything and accompanied his brother to Barbados. That was George's one and only time out of the continental, you know, Americas. And he got a little taste of that kind of uh, island life and saw a little bit more of the greater world. But guess what? Spoiler alert, it didn't work. And Lawrence returned to Virginia to die at his home in Mount Vernon. Where this seems to... Yeah. So he named his younger brother George as the heir to his estate in the event his own children didn't survive. You can probably guess how that turned out. So I guess they didn't survive. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, poor Lawrence uh, had four children. Uh, all of them died before the age of five years old. Most of them as babies. Which was common. And unfortunately, his little girl who survived him only lasted to like four and a half. And then she got sick of some childhood illness. Like, Unfortunately, it's like one of those things. One of the most common misconceptions is this idea that, that well, the average age people died was in their 40s or early 50s or whatever. But what they don't understand is almost everybody died before they were five years old. And so like you know, babies dying or a childhood illness wiping a kid out at like three years old, that was super common or just accidents. It was just dangerous to be a kid back then. But if you lived... If you made it to a, like a teenager, you were probably going to have a normal life expectancy, even by our standards. You're probably going to live to your 60s to maybe even 80s if you're really lucky. So it's just math that makes it where you, you know, that average age. And that's like yeah, a major misconception. Children die. And, unfortunately, and I mean, you know, it's like you have eight children and you have two surviving children. That was pretty common. Fucks up the math. And that's why you also have all those kids. Fucks up your vagina. So yeah, then this poor, and once again, this poor woman, uh, she had had four children by Lawrence Washington. None of them survived. Like imagine having to bury four kids and then he dies. Then she goes and remarries. So that instantly means Mount Vernon goes to George. And interestingly enough, total side note, but uh, Mount Vernon was named uh, for a British admiral named Edward Vernon, who was Lawrence Washington's commanding officer when he'd been in the British military. So... The most, like, super famous American historical sites named after a British admiral. Well, you know, nothing's perfect. So, uh, 1752, Washington's hit this point where he wants to own property, not just be a surveyor for a bunch of other people. And you get the, really get the sense that he wants to follow his dead brother's lead and kind of, like, achieve the things that Lawrence could have if he had lived long enough. Like, political clout. Right, and yeah, yeah. now that he can be that, he can have the social standing that he wants. Yeah, Lawrence Washington, he'd held a position on the House of Burgesses, which was, like, a high-ranking, like, it was a sort of a legislature-type position. Okay. And so, and Washington wanted to have a similar thing. So he had political goals, he wanted to own money, he wanted to have business deals, he wanted he to He wanted to a, wear fancy uh, shoes yeah, he, and yeah. dance. That all of the above. And marrying well. So we're saying, yeah, George is trying to live up to his to what Lawrence might have done if he'd have survived. But tuberculosis took out Lawrence. So that meant the, ne- the thing missing on George's resume next was military service. And this is just as our pressure cooker in North America is heating up. So one of the things that's not brought up much, like I said earlier, is how much money and business interests factor into the lead up to the French and Indian War. The British government had awarded a huge land grant to the Ohio Company. Uh, this collection of, of these business of these land speculators 
And if if the French held on to all this land in the Ohio River Valley, they stand to lose a fortune. Okay. The Ohio Company made a recommendation to build a fort at the forks of the Ohio River. So it's like the perfect spot where the rivers branch off to establish control of the area. The fort forks. The the, the fort at the forks. Uh, And so like right here would be a perfect spot. You know, have a fort with a bunch of troops stationed. That way they can protect settlers. And, you know, you always have people in the area to establish control. One of the major investors in the Ohio Company was none other than Lawrence Washington. So, who died this same year when this is going on. But he had been part of this, like, he drafted this recommendation. like, we should build a fort here. Please, Virginia government, do that. Um, so, when the Governor General Duquesne of New France learned of the, the British proposed forts, he's like, well, we got our own forts. We will build our own forts from Lake Erie all the way down to the Ohio River. And probably had both middle fingers raised while he was doing it. So, like, so the British announced that they want to build forts. And he's like, well, I mean, we're going to build our own forts directly opposing your forts so they can taunt each other yes. from across the river so once again the temperature's That's, going up we're not we're not I, there I, at war yet so so now now it's just like the insults and the antics ensue right so on the british side the awesomely named robert dinwiddie was lieutenant governor of dinwiddie. georgia dinwiddie he is a major player in this story. <laughs> Not dim witty, nope. but din. Din witty. Din witty. It is a very like J.K. Rowling kind of name. So he is a, is the lieutenant governor of Virginia, also a uh, major investor in the Ohio Company, along with Lawrence Washington. But as uh, as the lieutenant governor, he was also in a position to do something about it. He petitioned the British Crown for permission to build the proposed forts in the contested land. Took an entire year, but orders came back from London build the forts, and send an envoy to inform the French that their presence in the Ohio River Valley was no longer welcome. George saw his opportunity and went for it, requesting the appointment as the envoy. I'm going to guess that didn't go well. Well, that's <laughs> what we're about to talk about. Now, you might wonder why the hell anyone would appoint a 21-year-old kid with zero military experience in charge of an important expedition <laughs> that, like, with diplomatic implications across the globe. Yeah, yeah. But then you remember that George was known because he was working so hard to fit in with all these folks and was out there surveying all this land. So he, they knew he had experience going out into the woods and dealing with shit. And you also remember George's older brother was a major investor in this company. That's the whole reason we're doing this. And then... So now he's a major shareholder. So you can ma- you can probably guess that, that, that Governor Dinwiddie felt better that somebody with the company's interests in mind was the guy leading this expedition. And in fact... Uh, George, through the rest of his life, was accused of representing the company, the Ohio Company, not necessarily the the British government and, and the Virginian colonists. That tracks. It's hard to really say. However... It's hard to really say. However, that sounds like a track. But once you see how this all goes, it's like I so said, George is a complicated guy. You'll have to tell me how you feel about him after the end of all this shit. So, uh, according... Oh, Lord, I don't know how I feel about him now. I doubt any more information is going to help that. The orders were simple enough. Uh, Ron Chernow writes in his biography of Washington, quote, If the French were found to be building forts on English soil, they should be peacefully asked to depart. If they failed to comply, however, we do strictly charge and command you to drive them off by force of arms. Mm. This order was signed by none other than King George II. The father of the our father, King George. Yeah, I was about to say, so <laughs> this not is daddy the third. of our King George from our story of the American Revolution. Because all King George's, you know. So at this point, the, you know, George Washington is acting under direct orders from King George himself. 
So the newly minted Major George Washington, and yes, that's right. He goes from never having served mm-hmm. any military experience to now he's to a major. major in charge of this expedition. By means of money. Yeah. Wasted no time in recruiting his team. Even though, however, to be, to, to be fair, one of the things he does, he is not given any upfront cash. He has to fund all this shit himself and get paid on the back end. But that's what you do because he's... He's wanting to fit in with all these rich folk, and that's how this is done. Well, I mean, that's a lot of that that tracks as well. I mean, especially if you're a gentleman, the history of America. Yeah, if you're a gentleman and you're going to serve your your country, you're expected to fund it, and then you know you come back, and then we'll pay you, and and hope that they actually live up to that agreement because the U.S. Congress (laughs) doesn't like to do that either. Yep, we're gonna get to that because that's they sucked from before inception. But there was no, they weren't even a thing, and it's, they fucked this up. They, somehow. <laughs> so uh, he, so so George go, wastes no time in recruiting his team, making sure to get several people who are very familiar with the Western country and the local natives. I mean, one thing George knows how to do is go off for months into the country at this point because he can. He's been doing be it for in the years. wilderness. He's been doing it for years now as part of his job as a surveyor. So they made their way through the untamed wilderness, dealt with some shitty weather. And there's this one point where this is Pennsylvania in the middle of winter. So it's cold as fuck. There's snow, icy rivers everywhere. Uh, fun. And, and so they get to a river crossing and there's just like, it's like ice flows, you know, flowing down the river. They're all putting the, their stuff in canoes or rafts and going to, be, you know, easier crossings. And George decides you know, to swing his dick a little bit and show everybody how cool he is. He rides his horse directly into the water and the horse swims across and he's like high in the saddle, just looking every inch the total badass as the horse just cuts through this icy water. And then the horse gets hypothermia and dies. Not this time. R.I.P. horse. No, we're not We're not to the point where horses die yet. <laughs> not yet. We, we have multiple horse deaths in this story, oh, but we're goody. not there. At this point, to be fair, this is just a baller move. He just looks cool. Everybody's just... Like, oh, like look at that People tell stick. the stories of this guy as he rides his horse straight into the water. And, and you know, through his entire life, George is, is, is a, an incredible horseman. This is like one of the things he's very good at. He's an accomplished rider. And he does this scene, even in the Revolutionary War later on, middle-aged George Washington rides his horse across rivers, and everybody's like, damn! <laughs> so it's just one of his signature moves, just to show how, how cool he is. He knows how to do this. I've trained my horses, bitches. So then it was like, once they cross, this is where they get to that the forks in the Ohio that, that his brother had prized as this spot. So they, they make a camp, and then George starts taking, you know, doing his surveying thing and taking great notes First thing, okay, this is where we need to build this fort uh, for his report. So then he dispatches messengers to the local tribal leaders because he needs information about French activity and he wants an escort to fort the beef. <clears throat> so that's when Tanagrison, I think that's what he's called, the half king, comes back into the story. And even though this guy's twice George's age, they say that they got along. Like George earned some respect from this guy because once again... He may be he may be a little bit of a fancy boy, but he he affair is tough and brave. So uh, and, and that's another thing too, where George and his if you if you read his journals and letters, he's kind of a mixed bag when it comes like he's not as instantly racist as some of the people of his time. Like he's respect, instantly racist. He's as he's respectful for what the natives are good at, but he also call, he essentially calls them all mercenary and money grubbing and and questions their loyalty, which. 
if you read the rest of this... If well, you, I mean, that could be fair, though. If he's questioning loyalties, they didn't have a whole lot of them. Like, if you hear the rest of this story and look at it purely from his point of view, you can see where he's coming from. But if you look at it from their point of view, you can totally understand why they're just trying to make the best of... You know, they got dealt I, I love, bad hand. They're like, oh, the excuse me, can you please help me with this land I'm stealing from you? So this was still the age of genteel war and diplomacy. So George reaches this uh, like little French trading post, and they immediately invite him to dinner as their guests. They all they they the, the wine is flowing freely at this dinner. French are getting all completely wine drunk, and and George is just sitting there listening while they just say the quiet part out loud. They're like, "Oh yes, well, the French will dominate this region and kick the British out." <laughs> and he's just like, "Oh okay, I see how this is," and is quietly taking notes. For his entire life, George is not much of a drinker, and he also thinks that people serving the military shouldn't drink at all. And once again, there's a couple points in this story where it's like, oh, okay, I get why he has this opinion. This is one of them where it's like, he's there as this diplomat, and they're literally saying his his mission is doomed to fail. I mean, he's just doing the courtesy of handing them a note that they're going to ignore. And then telling them. Yeah, telling yeah. him to his they face. They told him to his face. But... Then they, they provide him an escort. So at this point, he's got a French escort and his native escort taking him all the way to Fort Shia LaBeouf. He delivers the message on behalf of the British crown, and then they ask him, you know, can you hang out for a few days while we send word back and to Governor Duquesne? We got to find out, you know, we got to give you a message to send back to your guys. So... He walks around and takes the shitload of notes about where all the where all the people with where guns are. Where all the are. things are. It's like, oh, there's a guard tower here. There's this many dudes. This is. The I mean, it was it was very nice of them to give yeah. him a grand tour of their facilities. Yeah, and he wasn't being dishonest. Like everybody knew he was doing. He's walking around and taking. What are you note doing? I'm surveying. It's like I'm just counting the guards up there in that that tower. So, the friend, the trip back home was difficult. They decided, uh, you know, this is the middle of winter. The horses are not doing well. So they abandoned their horses. So the, this is the horse, horse, horse wah, death. Wah. Maybe the horses are okay. I don't think the horses are okay. I don't think they made it. Uh, you don't know that. They're resilient creatures. They are. Uh, they ditched the horses. Uh, and George actually dressed up like a Native American. He actually put on like buckskin, walking leathers, he and maybe even moccasins. So a little cultural appropriation. Well he was in like disguise. I gotta hike through <laughs> central Pennsylvania and these clothes are way better than my fancy boy officer uniform. Probably. Yeah. He he winterized. Yes, he winterized and and so they hiking back the rest of the way. And it was quite a little adventure. So um, at one point, George, he'd gotten ill again and was so tired and exhausted and malnourished that he actually had one of their native guides holding his backpack. And then in the middle, they're walking through a field and suddenly this guy just runs out in front of them, whips out his horse pistol and just tries to shoot these guys Pulp Fiction style. Oh my God. And so the guy misses. The bull just whizzes behind the trees too. Holy fuck. <laughs> so George like immediately like, are you shot? No, are you shot? No. So George's friend uh, runs over, beats the shit out of this guy. Whips As out his, he should. Whips out his musket and is about to blow his brains out. And George is like, no, 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 stop, stop. Don't kill him. <laughs> Just because he tried to kill us doesn't mean we need to kill him. Um... Well, I mean that's that's debatable. That's so that's a conversation, I guess. So the next move, they decide to tie the guy up to a tree and then release him at night. And so then they're like terrified that guy's gonna go get friends and come back and finish them off. So George and his friend, because it's just the two of them at this point, are just running for it in the opposite direction, trying to lose you know, trying to lose this guy just in case. It. 
and gay's guy and they're just terrible and there's other guys just so pissed he's like why didn't you let me shoot him <laughs> we're gonna die because of you so so the next day they get to another river crossing and the river is almost completely frozen over there's just like a chunk in the middle of that's just not frozen over and so they spend all day constructing a crude ass raft to float their way across and so while george has a has made a makeshift pole and he's just kind of pulling through the water Suddenly an ice float goes loose, hits his pole, and knocks him into 10 feet of, like, freezing-ass water. Hypothermia. Yeah. So so he, uh, so he, George scrambles back up to the raft, and they make it over to this tiny little island where there's no fire. They just hover shivering on this island all night long in the middle of, this is February in Pennsylvania, I believe. Uh, so I guess it's advantageous for America that he didn't just die there. Yeah. And funny enough... It was his friend who ended up getting frostbite, not George. Because once again, he was a tough bastard. Oh, goodness. He made his way back to Williamsburg and delivered the sealed fuck you letter from the French to Governor Dinwiddie. And then uh, the governor gave him one entire night to turn his like 7,000 words worth of notes into one concise report. And didn't tell him that it would be published all over the world. <laughs> but George, he, he stayed up all night, did it. And that put his name out there for the first time and definitely not the last. So this was George's first adventure into the wilderness, which was just... For Governor Dinwiddie. For Governor Dinwiddie. And it was just a formality. It was just to tell the French, you have to leave. And the French saying, no. No. How about no? I thought you a second time. So uh, what really pissed George off was he got a measly 50 pounds for his trip, which would be the equivalent of about 30,000 in modern dollars. But you also have to remember he had to pay for all of it up front. So he basically got his expenses covered. Comes back and doesn't have like really jack to show for it other than he almost died of he pneumonia. He almost died and, of getting shot pneumonia. Uh, yeah. and... However, he was given orders to raise up and train 100 militia for you know what was going to be the next move. And so George decides a little political calculus. He's like, okay, I'll do this, but... um. And, and George has this this thing where he always combines like humility with a bit of ego, and so he's like, "Yes," and I humbly ask the, you, that I should be promoted to lieutenant colonel, <laughs> and it was granted. Lieutenant Colonel George Washington, twenty two years old. So at this point in Washington's life, you have to kind of understand that it's like, on one hand, he had some land, he had some things going on, but they were all kind of self sustaining and weren't giving him a lot of money to work with. So. He actually needed a job. It wasn't like he was independently wealthy. Like, he didn't have fuck you money. He still had to work. And this paycheck versus pride thing was kind of a recurring theme with him. So, you know, officers in the colonial militia got paid a lot less than those royal appointed ones we were talking about. I was about to say, that paycheck versus pride thing, that sounds very Hamilton. Yeah. And so more than once, George actually turned down a paycheck and he volunteered his services rather than be paid less than what he believed he was worth. And that was really, once again, kind of a political calculus. Because if he just took this short-term job in the colonial militia, people could always say he was doing it for money or because of his connections to the Ohio company. But by by volunteering and not accepting the salary, he was able to say, well, I was just wanting to serve my country. I was just doing my part. 
But he, but the thing he was, he earned political clout instead of actual capital. But he couldn't afford it. There was a points where he had to borrow money from other people, and that also sounds about right. Yeah. That that's a very uh, white pr- male thing to do. He wants to be proud. He wants to everybody to think he's this. Yeah, shit. everyone wants him to think that he's a bigger. He has a bigger dick than he does. Yep. <laughs> that sounds about right. And yeah. Washington has some serious. He's both ambitious and he has some pride. He so, has some dick swinging to do yet. And it may be that he that he borrowed money from his like one of his best friend's fathers while he was flirting heavily with that guy's wife. So I'm going to have to learn how to not audibly <laughs> sigh so much uh, well, <laughs> if I'm ever going to make this work. So, but getting back to <laughs> the military career. As you can imagine, George's 100 militia volunteers weren't exactly the cream of the crop. Oh, you don't say. So these are all his, guys who decided... His inbred to farmers. Yeah. Are... They didn't have proper clothing, weapons, or gear. They were drunk half the time. And he was constantly... That sounds very America, though. He was constantly pissed off, too, that under the English system, he was forced to obey the orders of a low-ranking officer if said officer had a Royal British Commission. So that means even as a lieutenant colonel, he'd have to obey a, a captain, even though he if technically British, outranked him. because... Right. British. So he, this is one the of those British things. outranked Americans just by being British. This just stung at George's pride. He oh, fucking hated I'm it. fucking sure he inside. Did. He was wanting to take his massive hands and just crush the skulls of these assholes, but he couldn't. So he just tried to make the best of things and, and make his ragtag troops ready for their second mission into the wilderness. Meanwhile, Governor Dinwiddie sent a guy named William Trent with 40 men out to the forks of the Ohio in early 1754. That spot that George had surveyed out to begin construction of a small fort. The French, however, sent over 500 soldiers with additional support to secure the area. But once again, we're still in gentlemanly times. So the French officer not only allowed the British workers to leave peacefully, but he actually purchased their their tools and construction equipment for a fair market price. So he gave them cash and and then sent (laughs) them on their way. That is very polite. I know, right? Well, we were already here. However, while they were leaving, essentially flipping the two middle fingers because they tore down everything the British made and built a much more grand, larger series of structures uh, that they named after their recently promoted Governor General of New France, Fort Duquesne. Sounds douchey. Yeah. There's douches aplenty <laughs> in this story. Our cup overfloweth with douche. <laughs> say i don't think this is it's all douche it is nothing but a big squeegee of vinegar water yeah so dinwiddie sent washington and his men into the wilderness to secure and assist with the construction of what was supposed to be fort trent but on the way the guys are coming back the other direction with none of their equipment and they're like uh about that fort So he's like learning this on the way. He's only got 100 guys with him. So then his tribal allies show up, including, once again, the half king, who looks at these 100 (laughs) assholes and is immediately not thrilled with the situation. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not thrilled with this situation. Because he had just been out there in the Ohio country and he knows how many French soldiers are there. And he's like, and you show up with these guys. Um, but George is like, he assures everyone. He's like, no, 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 no. This is the tip of the spear. We're just the vanguard of this huge British host with, with cannons and, and all kinds of guys. So he bullshitted them? <laughs> yes. He was 100% talking out of his ass at this time. 
I mean, sometimes a bunch of bullshit. You can if you can get away with it. It's like he's not going to get barely into this trip and immediately turn around and run back to Governor Dinwiddie and say, "Oh, there's it's, <laughs> there's too many of these guys, man." He's not going to do that. He's got he's trying to prove himself, and he's he's tw- got dicks to swing. He's 22 years old, and I can tell you, as a guy who was once a 22 year old male. You are convinced you're invincible and you can just pull off any impossible task that you set for yourself. So after clearing out an area and establishing a temporary base, they got word of a small French scouting force not far away. And then that night they're they're camped and everybody is hearing people skulking around. They're convinced that there are French spies creeping around their camp. They don't catch anybody. But they're like their nerves are shot, and they're convinced they're all about to be murdered they're in their all sleep. Paranoid. Yeah, they're they're all freaked out. The the scouts find a gr- small group of French Canadians encamped nearby in kind of a hidden glen. So George decides they're going to go after these guys because they said they're convinced that they were the ones the, fucking the around French, in their camp. They're the French spies. Right. The half king scouted the enemy's location, found out where these guys were encamped, and so they decide to march through the night to prep their first engagement with the enemy. Now, I've seen photographs and watched a video of a guy walking around the location that this this happened in. George's story is that they they sort of completely surrounded the glen, but were spotted by the French, who immediately opened fire on them. So the battle immediately ensued. Mm. Uh, and that may be true. I have no way of knowing what happened for sure. But if you look at the terrain, it was an it ambush. It sounds like a bunch of bullshit. It was an ambush because it's like it's like there's there's like a high ridge with a bunch of tree cover, and that's where George and his guys were positioned. And he sent all the natives on the backside to cut off any possibility of retreat. So all the French are literally like asleep in their bedrolls. And then if you look at the numbers, uh, you know, ten French soldiers were shot dead, and more were wounded. Almost nobody gets hurt on the British side. And so the, like, the whole thing was over in like 15 minutes. So what happened next is also debated to this very day. The French commanding officer was named Joseph Coulon de Jumonville. And he was bearing diplomatic papers on his person. That means if the French forces had simply been on a diplomatic mission and if George had fired on them unprovoked, then he'd have committed a no-no in this age of genteel, gentlemanly warfare that we've been talking about. So, obviously, there's no way he would have done that. So, there are three versions of this story. <laughs> we'll see what we'll see what you think might have happened after you hear all of them. This is a very clue moment. So, one version of this story, and maybe the most dramatic, is that, uh, that this guy, Jumonville, was wounded during the skirmish, but then he started waving his papers around in the air. It's like, I am a diplomat! I am a diplomat! Do not shoot! And then started reading his own message from the French government, declaring that all British were ordered to leave the Ohio River Valley. So the half-king walks right up to the officer and splits his face open with a tomahawk in front of God and everybody. Oh, that, that tracks. That guy really hated the French. Remember the whole, yeah. I mean, ate you my know, father thing. He, he, yeah, I mean. You ate my father, prepare to die. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, he dipped his hands in the officer's brains and then scalped him. Now, the second version of the story says that Jumonville was just simply shot and killed in the short in the middle of the battle, and that's just all there was to it. Either way, he's dead. And then what happens next isn't up for debate. The Native Americans descended on the wounded French soldiers, braining, just smashing in the skulls of all of them and scalping all of them. So, like, the ones who just simply surrendered were allowed to live, but all of the wounded were just massacred right then and there. The natives just finish off and scalp the wounded French 
So George Washington was the commanding officer during an ambush that included atrocities that were a bit foreign to the European sensibilities. Though to be fair, uh, if he was too hard on his native allies, they would abandon the British and he'd be up shit creek without even a paddle or a canoe. So while the George claimed the French fired first and reasoned that they were on a diplomatic mission, he was like, well, if these guys wouldn't have picked such a hidden spot for their camp, if they were truly diplomats, they'd just walked right up and handed us a note. And they were sneaking around our camp the night before, which means they're spies and it was totally cool. Every We did everything right, you guys. <laughs> it's totally kosher. It's fine. And, you know, so George always maintained this to the day he died, that, that this was a legit fight and that the other guys fired first. Which is a smart thing to say because most historians consider the Battle of Jumonville Glen the first shots fired in the French and Indian War. And which also means that depending on how you look at that, this may be one of the opening skirmishes of an entire world war that spanned five entire continents. Thanks, George. Now, the French version, the third version of the story... You, you, we basically know that the, you know, the revolution was just two guys named George swinging their dicks around. Indeed. But at this point, the, the Georges are all lined up against the French. <laughs> their dicks are swinging in the same direction. So the, uh, the third French version of this story paints the British as dishonorable ambushers who shot Jumonville in the head while he was reading his papers. And they actually said that the Native Americans prevented a total massacre. They even said that the Natives actually rushed forward and put their bodies in harm's way to prevent all of the prisoners from being executed. And once again, if you remember how the French are trying to make their allies happy, painting Natives as heroes, once again, is, makes sense. So everybody has reasons to lie about all this, so there's no way to know the truth. The truth is everyone was wrong and everyone was terrible. Yeah. And they probably just, it, it could have literally been anything. But as far as the French go, George Washington is a war criminal. And that may be fair. So he sends the message back to Governor Dinwiddie, who's stuck with, okay, what do we do now? But remember, there was direct orders from the Crown. If the French don't leave, you're supposed to shoot at them. So so Dinwiddie's like, okay. So he sends strings of wampum, which I don't know if you remember what wampum, but that was sort of like the the beads made of seashells and, and oysters and stuff like that that was used as, as currency and trade between tribes. It was sort of like the native de facto trading thing. So sends wampum and barrels of rum for, quote, Indian diplomacy while writing letters back to London and making it sound like the British troops were just minor partners. We had to help them out. We were allies, after all. We were there to shoot them. Yeah. You know. And, and you know, the In French fairness. got shot. So either way, the consequences of these actions spiraled far beyond the colonies and contributed to the whole global seven years world war thing. Or 22. As, as Ron Chernow puts it, while the folks at home embraced him as an improbable hero, Washington was denigrated in England as a reckless young warrior and in France as an outright assassin. So again, way to go, George. I can't think of George Washington as an assassin, though. I mean, he's... I mean, I my <sighs> knowing how he presented himself, and as I've been reading a lot about young George Washington, I don't think... Ambusher, yes. I don't think he knowingly shot the guy waving around diplomatic papers. Either it's true that one of the natives killed the guy, because if he was wounded, they did kill mm. all the wounded people. Or they just, he just got shot in the battle and he just died as a result of that. But I don't think he intentionally pulled that, pulled that move because even he, for once again, that wouldn't have gone with the reputation he was going for. But he was stuck with But it with happened. It. But he was stuck with what happened. Now, accounts of George's command style over the years always point to his homicidal bravery. 
I mean, he was always willing to put himself in incredible danger and over the course of his life had multiple horses shot out from under him or would go back and find just bullet holes in his coat. And he just acted like he was invincible. And frankly, there's no evidence to say that he wasn't, wasn't bulletproof because he never got shot his entire life, despite putting himself in many situations where he was getting shot at. And he always led from the front. Like he was not a... He deflected guard. them. Just... Now, during around this time in his early 20s, he, he wrote to his brother Jack, quote, I have heard the bullets whistle and believe me, there was something charming in the sound. Which, again, he was writing to his brother, trying to sound tough and cool. Like, he was the Patrick Swayze uh, of the day. Very, very, you know, uh, very macho. Oh, wow. And funny enough, this, this the word of that got out, and at one point, King George was like, like he may perhaps he'd change his mind if he hears a few more. Uh, yeah, I mean... So, George pulls his men back several miles to a defensive position... And begin construction on a little emergency fort so they could dig in and not... Because George does not want to run away all the way back to Virginia. He wants to hold the ground that they've well, gained. Well, of course, because he's, you know, swing, still swinging his yeah. giant... He's invincible. Bullet-deflecting dick. <laughs> but he knows that he's not in a great position. He, so he's smart enough. You can get an idea of his mindset by the name he gives this little fort. Fort Necessity. Fort Necessity, I mean, which is the mother of all invention. When the tribal allies took stock of the situation, they realized the British were incredibly outnumbered and they decided to peace out, making them making the British even more vulnerable. Well, actually, Virginians. The half-king described Fort Necessity as that little thing upon the meadow. Oh, what? That can't possibly. I mean, that's not good for George's giant dick. No, so they got deserted. <laughs> the natives were like, oh, fuck this. We have zero Get reason. Out. No reason to die here for you guys. No, thank you. So one thing I'm completely skipping over is all the road building that's been going on this whole time and throughout the war. So you can pretty much assume that whenever we're not talking about building a fort or a battle... There are people working on roads full time because you need them in order to get supply wagons in, to get troops in faster. Roads are important. Roads are a big deal. Everybody, you know, they learned that lesson well from the Roman Empire. That good roads mean you can get things and people around fast. So they're doing all that. So while they're working on this fort and getting everything ready, they're also building roads so that the people and cannons. And they do get a little bit of reinforcements from Virginia. So they... They're up to 300 men in Fort Necessity. Um, and so on June 28th, George calls everyone back into the fort from road building and such to brace for an upcoming French attack. He realized a couple things quite quickly. His men were exhausted, malnourished, and he didn't have nearly enough fighting men to defend the flimsy fort. You can almost say they were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. Yeah. And, well, that's, it, that's a prequel for his entire career. Yeah. As a military commander. I mean, that was... You just described the entire, like, American army. He was used <laughs> to being behind the eight ball. But like the Spartan warriors of the Bronze Age, George was convinced his 300 men could hold out against a much larger force, despite the fact that Shabby Fort Necessity was very badly placed. It was too small, and it was in a meadow, surrounded by woods and higher ground. Oh, ew. Yeah, so George defends this the rest of his life. Like, uh, and I was not an idiot when I picked this spot for this fort. But the truth <laughs> is, it was like the perfect place. The for... worst spot to have a fort. Right. You give the French <laughs> yeah. sharpshooters an elevated position where they can use trees I as mean, cover. I don't know jack about shit, but I know you want the high ground. 
And, giving, and again, giving the enemy I know obvious- jack about shit when it comes to like any kind of hunting, military, even just wilderness. Granting the enemy <laughs> a raised position to fire on you from cover isn't the best planning. My ten year old with a Nerf gun can can strategize better. So, but George, once again, his his pride forces him to defend this decision for the rest of his life. He's lucky that he didn't have to defend that fort for the rest right. of his life. Well, his life would have been short if he fought to the death. So, on the way, the French forces found the the site of Jumonville Glen, and the and the bodies just laying out there, and were decidedly pissed off. <laughs> it probably didn't help that the commander of the French forces was Jumonville's older brother, looking for some very personal payback. Yeah, that tracks. So I keep bringing up Hamilton, mm. but if you remember in the musical, there's a line Washington does, and I'll try to sing that line acapella. He goes, I was younger than you are now when I was given my first command. I led my men straight into a massacre. I witnessed their deaths firsthand. This is what he was talking about. This moment right here at Fort Necessity. The colonial troops were already surrounded by constant gunfire when God decided to make things worse, and a heavy rain began. And this is back in the days when keeping your powder dry was like an actual thing you had to worry about. So suddenly their muskets are completely this is, useless. This went from bad to worse yep. to ultimately just stupid. And because the, the fort was so small and they had 300 guys... They had to dig trenches all the way around and just position some guys just in the trenches. So these guys were literally just getting shot at and they're, they're just like, and they're filling up with mud and blood. And then meanwhile, because they couldn't fit any of the animals that they had with them as part of their, you know, a roving supplies, they just were all left out in this open meadow. So the <laughs> French and natives just butchered all the horses, cattle, and dogs to deprive the colonials everything. of everything because... So they're inside, they're around, they're, they have like a little bit of flour and bacon left. A hundred of the Virginians have already been killed by gunfire. But if you want to know how bad it is one-sided, the French suffered only three dead and 17 <laughs> wounded. So and 20 total casualties, even though there yeah, were way more good, of them. Good job, George. Good job. So that night, the French decided they signaled they would be willing to, you know, negotiate surrender. Like they knew they that the British were fucked inside fort necessity the virginia militiamen had had about enough of this so they busted out the rum that was meant for indian diplomacy <laughs> and got shit face drunk and as one does because they were and, all yeah you're either looking at death or imprisonment a third of them were already like dead. dead you're looking at starvation death they had yeah, they're, they're there out was, of, there was there was nowhere for them to go but drunk. They were out of food. <laughs> they were it was, they couldn't even shoot their fucking guns. They couldn't shoot themselves. <laughs> they couldn't themselves. even shoot themselves. So we're getting fucked, y'all. Yep. So So they had an epic death party. So George realizes Fort that, necessity. that his men basically just they were just getting trashed. Fucked. And, and so he had to wave the proverbial white flag. Which could have actually been a physical white flag. Oh yeah, they they did that back yeah. then. But it wasn't. This, it might not have even. But been at this proverbial. point, it still had to come. Like the sad part was, like it still came from the French side first. Like, hey, do you guys want to surrender? Because we don't really want to kill all of you. An interpreter went back and forth between the two sides. Ah, uh, George. Yeah. Uh, the interpreter went back and forth between the two sides, and the guy finally coming back with the with the terms written, the all the terms of surrender written in French, the ink running from the rain. So. 
when George signed the surrender agreement, he didn't realize it included a confession for the assassination <laughs> of Schumannville. So he accidentally confessed. He accidentally con- convinced. He was accidentally confessed to the political assassination of a French diplomat. You know, in any other story, I, this would be the sad end of George. for being a political assassin. So this naturally provided plenty of justification for further French support of the war, was a total black eye on the diplomatic reputation of England, who had treated George himself so honorably, and like, like already the newspapers all over the world had learned about what George had done. So if that wasn't bad enough, they seized George's diary and passed it back to to Governor General Duquesne. Oh, that's terrible. Who made fun of Washington and then... (laughs) And then published the entire thing in Paris. <laughs> That's such a dick move. I mean, it's kind of glorious. Look at this asshole. Yeah. So, so this is a low point in George's career. This is a low point for I was about to say, I've never heard this. So this is like so George so poor George was defeated. Having been humiliated, George and his men are allowed to march back. They're not taken as prisoners, they're just ordered to leave. To leave. And Fort Necessity's torn down. Um, George is defeated, his reputation has been curb stomped. And then his brother's Lawrence's last surviving child dies. And George inherits Mount Vernon. He resigns his commission in the Virginia militia and decides to set about preparing his first planting of tobacco. And that's where we're going to end part one on young George Washington and the French and Indian part War. Part one. Next time when we get together, I'm going to tell you about George's third and final uh, expedition in where he has to take a subservient role this time because now some things are going to get shaking. The war is going to heat up. Um, the, the British are going to decide they want to, they're going to fund a much more aggressive campaign. They're going to send in regular British troops. The guy George wants to be part of that he wishes he was an officer of. And unfortunately, George is forced to serve under a very traditional, stuffy uh, British general named Braddock. Well, I mean, after being publicly humiliated to the entire world with the reading of one's diary. So this is George's chance. This is when he, this is now salty George. If he is, he has to suck up his pride. But if he wants to to salvage his military reputation, he's got to go do this one more time. And Braddock is one of these guys who thinks that you should, like, you fight like you do in the old country. You you march your dudes in red coats and you put them in a field and you line them up all next to each other. And you, you signal that it's time to start shooting each other. Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah, the French that's don't fight that dumb. way in the, in, you know, in the American colonies. So that's going to go badly. And, uh, and George is going to have to be there to, to pick up the pieces when it does. Oh, George. Oh, George. Yeah, so then we'll, we'll get on to what his, and we'll talk about how all of the fallout from, from all of this directly contributes to a bunch of pissed off Americans uh, who decide to shake off Bunch of these colonists. Kings. Yeah. And so. their fucking taxes and their bullshit. Yeah, and even though we'll get into this too, this is also interestingly a period where when this war heats up, is the first time that there is a meeting between representatives from all 13 colonies. So it's, it establishes this precedent. So the idea is, do we, do we join together as colonies to support the war effort to fight the French? Because the colonies had all, they were just all independent of each other. They didn't, other than some trade had nothing to do with each other up to this point. So 
They came up with uh, the the chief architect of what they called the Albany Plan, because it was done in Albany, New York, was none other than Benjamin Franklin. And he published a very famous political cartoon of a snake in 13 segments, and underneath it it says, Join or Die. Which, even though it didn't work, the Albany Plan was approved by the the little convention they called, but the state, not states yet, but the colonies didn't approve it back home. So it got rejected, but it laid the groundwork and that slogan and even the image of a snake representing the colonies, which will be used later in the revolution with the don't tread on me, which is now used by douchebags. Okay. So signing off, I will just simply say, if you want to follow me and any of the crap that I do on the internet, I have a website called jamiechambers.net that will take you to the other stuff. If you want to financially support the stuff that we're doing with this, you can check out uh, my Patreon at patreon.com slash Jamie Chambers. And that's it for me. Bambi probably wants to avoid all contact. Yeah, please don't. Don't look at me Don't find up. her. Don't, <laughs> don't look, look for her. Up. Uh, if you yeah. see her in public, don't <laughs> acknowledge her. Yeah. Maybe wave. It depends on what kind of day I'm having. You can side eye her. Yeah, you will never find me on Twitter. Ever. Um, you possibly can find me on Facebook, but good luck with that. I post never. Yeah. It's, I have zero online presence and I intend to keep it that way somewhat. Well, except for now. We're gonna... Except, for, well, again, this is very limited. This <laughs> is more like, like your online presence, not you mine. To, you get to listen, Bambi, you get to listen to Bambi, share her opinions and you can completely leave her Yeah, alone. exactly. <laughs> So you know what? You don't. Mine. You don't have to even like my opinions. I give no fucks at all. So I'm um, not even saying I'm right. So forward your sexist and harassing emails to me. Your misogynist bullshit directly to Jamie because I. Have, I will deal with it on her behalf. No interest. So next time we will talk about George Washington and the end of all this bullshit. And some more douchebaggery. <laughs>